Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today we got the uh, official government non-farm payroll report. I guess it was the weakest uh, jobs report in the history of jobs reports. Uh, And of course, the stock market rallied on the news. In fact, the NASDAQ was up uh, 141.66. That's just over 1.5%, almost 1.6%. The NASDAQ is now positive on the year. It's back above 9,000. In fact, we're at 9,121. The highest we got on the NASDAQ was what? 9,800 and change. So, you know, we're what? Less than 10% or so from a new all-time record high on the NASDAQ. But imagine that the NASDAQ is actually positive on the year. Think about that. Think about all the things that have happened since the beginning of this year. Think about how optimistic everybody was on the U.S. economy and on corporate earnings when uh, 2019 came to an end. Now think of what's happened. We've now entered a depression. Uh, the economy has imploded. In fact, I'm looking at the, the Atlanta Feds now. Their, their official uh, GDP now forecast for the second quarter is a contraction of 34.9%, which is massive. Obviously, you have to divide by four to get the the total decline in the economy because they annualize the quarterly numbers. But obviously, that will uh, be the second uh, quarter in a row 
of uh, falling GDP. And it's not just falling, it's over the edge of a cliff. So we're in a massive recession, which nobody thought was coming uh, anytime soon at the end of 2019. So despite the beginning of this massive recession, uh, the NASDAQ is actually positive on the year. So people think that NASDAQ stocks are worth more today, even though we're in the depths of the worst recession ever, right? People think that NASDAQ stocks are worth more today than they were when 2019 ended, 2020 began. Now, of course, the NASDAQ is the only major stock market index that is positive on the year. And that is because of its concentration or overrepresentation in these FANG stocks, these big tech stocks that have not only completely weathered the storm, but have actually benefited. People are actually seeking refuge in these stocks as they bail out of everything else. They're piling in uh, to these names that are perceived to be the beneficiaries of everybody staying at home and, and, and just spending the money that the government creates and, 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 and puts in the mail, right? So there are the, the winners and the losers uh, from COVID-19. And so everybody is piling into the winners and that is having a, a, a disproportionate effect on a cap-weighted uh, index like the S&P uh, 500. But let me get into the weeds on the jobs report number that came out today on the last podcast I did Wednesday, we went over the uh, ADP private payrolls. This includes uh, the government payrolls. And, and that number was actually a miss, right? As bad as that one was supposed to be, the actual number was a little bit worse. I think we we're maybe between the revisions from the prior month, we maybe had about 400,000 more jobs lost than what had been expected. Well, this time it was actually a beat. The number wasn't as bad, although it's hard to see this as a reason to celebrate. But the consensus uh, loss was for 21.5 million jobs. And that was on top of the 701,000 jobs that were lost in March. Now, first of all, they did revise March upwards, right? So that went from minus 701,000 to minus 870,000. So that's like an extra 159,000 jobs, which I guess in the scheme of things really doesn't amount to much unless you're one of those 159,000 people, then it amounts to a lot. But as far as the statistics are concerned, you know, it's just noise here. But instead of 21.5 million jobs being lost, we only lost 20.5 million. Hey, that's 1 million fewer than was expected. So that's a beat, right? We beat the forecast uh, by a million jobs. So, hey, that's great news. Let's celebrate. Let's bid the stock market higher. The unemployment rate, the official unemployment rate, rose from 4.4, which is where it stood uh, at the end of March, to the current level of 14.7. That is the new official unemployment rate, which, hey, is better than the 16.4% that had been expected. So it's only 14.7% until you kind of read the fine print, right? Because the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I guess had a kind of an asterisk on there uh, when it came to this number. And they said that the actual job losses may have been closer to 30 million, right? So maybe it wasn't 
the $20.5 million. It may have actually been $30 million. They're not really sure. So it could have been as bad as $30 million. And the unemployment rate, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, might actually be 19.5%, right? Maybe it's not 14.5%. It's, maybe it's 19.5%, which means it probably is 19.5%. So who the hell knows, right? I'm sure that the picture that is being painted by this official report is actually much rosier than the one that's actually out there. And the government is even indicating that. Just take these numbers with a grain of salt because as bad as they are, they're probably a whole lot worse. A labor force participation rate all the way down to 60.2. And probably the reason that um, it's not even lower than that is because if you're unemployed, right, but looking for work, I think you're still uh, participating, right? Even if you're not working, you're, you're looking for work. But, you know, a lot of these people who have lost their jobs are not looking for work, which is probably why they're not in the official unemployment rate. Because if you're, you know, uh, at home and you're just quarantining yourself uh, in, you know, you're sheltering in place and you just got laid off, you really can't look for a job if you can't leave your house. I mean, I suppose you could look for a job online, but there's probably a lot of people that were just laid off that aren't looking for another job. And so uh, they're not in there. And of course, I don't think the gig economy workers are in there, right? Because they were never employed to begin with. They were working for themselves. But guys that were driving Ubers or whatever they were doing, uh, they're probably not driving, you know, that much now. They probably are not doing anything. So they're not really earning any money, but they're not unemployed because they were never employed. They were uh, self-employed. So they were never fired. They never quit. Uh, they're just not, you know, earning any money. So the, the, all, none of these numbers really amount to much because as bad as the numbers are, they're actually a lot worse. Now, some of the numbers just superficially look good. Right, like uh, average hourly earnings were up 4.7 percent, which is a huge gain. 4.7 percent. I mean, the consensus was just 0.3, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, why more people didn't factor this in. Although there was a wide range of the forecasts, and the average uh, hourly earnings year over year was up 7.9 percent. Big jump. The consensus was for a gain of uh, 3.2. So why is this, right? Why was there such a big jump in what people are earning, right? Did a lot of people get raises? No. Remember, this is the average of what the people who are still working are earning. So what happened was a lot of the lower income people got fired, right? So they were not working. And so their lower wages didn't bring down the averages. That's what happened, right? Who is the most heavily impacted uh, by the shutdowns? It's the service sector, right? It's the people that are working in restaurants, in hotels, in, in, in bars, right? Leisure and hospitality and restaurants. These guys all lost their jobs and they are lower paid workers. So when you take all these lower paid workers out of the equation and then you average the earnings of everybody who's left, you're going to get a higher number. Because, you know, a lot of white-collar workers, they didn't get fired. They, they just worked at home, right? We didn't fire anybody, right? At Europe Pacific Capital or now Alliance Global Partners or Europe Pacific Asset Management, not a single person was laid off. But almost everybody 
is working from home rather than their office because the type of work that uh, my employees do uh, can be done from home. But the type of work that a lot of people in restaurants do can't be done from home. I mean, either you show up at the restaurant because you've got customers or you're unemployed. So obviously, uh, lower income workers were disproportionately affected. That's why if you know you look at the numbers, people without high school diplomas, right? They saw a much bigger jump in their unemployment rates than people with college degrees. Again, because people who don't have degrees, who didn't graduate high school, they have a greater percentage uh, of people working in these lower skill, lower paid jobs that really uh, took the brunt of the layoffs. The same thing with minorities. I mean, I'm hearing all this about how this is not fair because look at the impact on minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics. Uh, they had a greater increase in job losses, of course, because you have a greater representation of minorities in those lower paid jobs uh, where you know you had such a widespread uh, layoffs. And of course, these are the jobs that aren't coming back. I mean, some of them are going to come back, but I, the majority of these jobs just are not going to come back. I mean, a lot of these jobs should have been lost years ago. They were, again, kept alive uh, by the Fed, uh, but a lot of them are not going to come back, right? They, you know, that they're going to be a permanent job losses. People just assume that these losses are temporary when, when they're not. You know, I was listening to a, um, an interview today. I don't remember uh, which particular uh, department store or chain uh, of retailers uh, this guy uh, was representing, but he was talking about the plan to reopen their, their stores and that they were selling clothing. And I, you know, it was a long list of precautions that they were going to take to try to keep their workers and their customers safe, right? But one of the things that jumped out at me is they said, look, we're not going to have any dressing rooms open and we're not going to have any bathrooms. So we're closing all the bathrooms in the stores and we're closing all the changing rooms. So basically, I mean, you can't try on any of the clothes. And I think they don't want people handling clothing because you get your germs on there. And then somebody else tries it on and now they've got your germs. And in fact, they mentioned that they have to basically uh, decontaminate all the inventory uh, before they put it on the shelves. And I suppose if somebody returns something, they've got to decontaminate it all over again. But think about this. If you're talking about a retail store, right, where you can't try anything on while you're there, and if you have to go to the bathroom, you, you can't even use one. I mean, if, if uh, these stores had a hard time competing with Amazon before, it's impossible to compete with them. Now, look, the main thing that an actual store had going for it over an online retailer is you can go into the store and you can try stuff on. You can feel the fabric on the material. You can put it on. You can see if it fits. I mean, first of all, you never know with the sizes because a lot of these companies, the sizes are not the same as other sizes. So you always have to try something on. And then even if it fits, it may not look good on you. I mean, some people, of course, are very particular, especially women. Uh, you know, it may look one way on the hanger, but it looks a different way when, when it's on you. But when you go to an actual store, you can try stuff on and then buy what you like. Right? I mean, that, you, know, you can see if you like the material, like the way it feels and all that. 
Uh, online, you can't do that. Obviously, they make it easy with free returns and free shipping, but you still, you buy it, then you got to wait for it to arrive, then you try it on. If you don't fit, you got to box it back up, you got to ship it back, you got to order again. It's kind of inconvenient. Uh, so that's a plus that the brick and mortar stores have. But if, if basically the brick and mortar stores are going to say, yeah, you can come in here, but you can't try anything on, right? You just got to buy it, take it home, and then if it fits, keep it. If not, then drive it back here and return it, and then you can buy something else. I mean, the hell with that. Who wants to do that? I mean, you know, just go to go online and buy stuff. And, you know, you can't even use the bathroom while you're there. And there's like all kinds of stuff that's going to be going on that really, you know, re, you know, undercuts your experience. And so my mother was telling me she got a, an email from, I guess, the dermatologist. And it was a long list of uh, things that they were going to do, right, to, uh, you know, to keep everybody safe. And by the time my mom, you know, finished reading this long list of stuff, it was like, forget it. I don't even need to go. What's the point? Why bother and subject myself? I mean, I, you know, I'll just wait. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the conditions under which these uh, businesses are going to have to operate are just not very appealing uh, to the customers. And the customer has a choice. I mean, most of this stuff is discretionary spending, right? We have the discretion to, to do it or not. And you know what? I mean, let's just not do it. Lots of people are, are going to be thinking that way. So as, as difficult a time as some of these companies were going to have uh, without uh, COVID-19, it's, it's just going to be so much worse. So we're not getting back to normal. I mean, people are still not appreciating that. You know, I was listening to Jack Lou. He was being interviewed. You know, he was the Secretary of the Treasury under Obama. And this guy was like, you know, we got to continue these enhanced unemployment benefits, right? This extra $600 a week. He said, we got to continue this until the unemployment rate is all the way back down to where it was, you know, before this crisis started, which was, you know, what, four point something, right? Now it's, you know, who knows what, 19 and a half. And we got to continue to make these payments until the unemployment rate is back down on the force. It's not going to be back down on the force for at least another decade, if not more. I mean, how could we continue these kind of payments? And in fact, if we do continue to pay people more money not to work, then we're paying them to work. They're never going back to work. They'd be idiots to go back to work. So discontinuing this program guarantees that people are not going to go back to work. And in fact, the, the Senate Democrats now, they, they're saying that they want 2000 a month. They're, they're doubling up on what Andy Yang wanted, right? They want 2000 a month per person until things are back to normal, which means indefinitely. And of course, once you get a voter hooked on $2,000 a month for free for doing nothing, nobody wants to take that away, right? There's nothing as uh, permanent as a temporary government program. So this is the road that we are headed to. And there's just there's just no way uh, that we're going to get off this. You know, I was listening to the uh, Joe Rogan podcast who um, interviewed um, Elon Musk. Uh, and it's a good interview. You should watch. It's about two hours. Uh, but the, 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 the most important part of it, I think, is when, you know, they were talking about the economy and the shutdown. And, and Elon basically said a lot of the things that I've been saying, uh, and I'm not the only one, there are a number of people that agree that this was a huge overreaction by the government, that 
they exaggerated the disease and how lethal it was. And, you know, we should have taken, you know, a Swedish type approach and not the approach that we that we did. Right. But putting even that aside. Right. Because then when Rogan was talking to Musk, he was saying, well, you know, should we just be err on the side of caution and err on the side of keeping people healthy? And, you know, we'll just keep people sheltering at home to play it safe and just make sure the government provides the money, right? That we just make sure that we support everybody through this crisis and make sure that the people who are staying at home have plenty of money so they can go out and spend and buy the things that they need. And so they're not, you know, suffering through no fault of their own. And then, you know, Elon Musk basically said something that most people don't even consider, right? I mean, he's obviously, he's a very brilliant guy, but he also has common sense when it comes to economics, which a lot of Nobel laureates in economics don't even have, right? And so what Elon said is that, look, we just can't, you know, have people staying at home, not working and just send them money. You know, we got to make stuff. He says, if you want to consume stuff, you got to make it, which is true, which is what so few economists seem to understand. You can't consume what's not produced. And if no one's producing, then no one's consuming, right? And he said that, you know, people think that there's just this giant horn of plenty out there and just whatever we want just magically appears. That as long as we want to buy, there's going to be stuff to buy. And that's not true. We only have what we produce. And if people are not working, then they're not producing. Now, of course, how has America gotten by? Because, you know, we have these big trade deficits. That's what's going on. We're consuming what the Japanese are producing. We're consuming what the Chinese are producing. But the problem is when they no longer want to accept our paper, right, for their stuff, then there's no more stuff. See, uh, Elon didn't get into that aspect of it. He got into the aspect of, well, if we're not working, then we're not producing stuff. But you have foreigners who have been working and they've been producing stuff and we've been able to consume it because they've been willing to trade the stuff that they make for the paper that we print. But that's going to come to an end. If we're going to keep printing it the way we are, right? And I'm going to get into, I'll, you know, go into the uh, statistics, the money supply and the balance sheet again. We got those uh, numbers out yesterday. But if we're just going to shelter in place and we're going to dole out money and we're going to just run up trillions and trillions and trillions in annual uh, budget deficits, how much longer is the dollar going to hold up? Yeah, the dollar index is still up there. It's, you know, just under 100 now, 99 uh, and change. Uh, But how much longer can the dollar stay afloat when we are, you know, sinking it? We're we're basically daring the world uh, to dump the dollar because, you know, the the longer the dollar doesn't collapse, the more we think we could get away with this, the more we think we could just keep printing. And of course, as we tell the public that we're going to print money, then they start to expect it, right? And if we condition the public to think, Hey, you can all get $2,000 a month a person. You don't have to work, right? Well, that's what we're creating. We're creating a nation that feels they're entitled to these payments. And once they feel that way, there's no turning back. You know, a big uh, uh, market moving uh, realization that happened yesterday was that we saw a uh, decline in the 
uh, expectation for Fed funds in the first quarter of 2021. And for the first time in history, the markets now expect the Fed funds rate to be negative, right? The markets are now actually factoring in negative interest rates. So now we're not talking about zero interest rate policy. Right now, the Fed funds is targeted between zero and 0.25. But according to these forward contracts, the implied Fed funds rate in the first quarter of 2021 is a negative number, which has never happened before. But when this happened, you know, you saw a big rally in gold yesterday, not no follow through today, but the gold stocks, many of them hit new highs. In fact, the GDX hit a new uh, 52 week high uh, today. So the gold stocks were strong, but overall stocks are strong because of the idea that interest rates are going to go negative. And so the expectation is that, well, if 0% rates are good, well, then negative rates are even better. But when you stop and think about what this implies, right? Because if the markets are thinking that the Fed funds rate is actually going to be negative in January or February of 2021, what is that telling you about what the market thinks about the economy in early 2021? Clearly, the market expects the economy to still be in recession because if uh, the markets anticipated the economy was doing well, why would they factor in negative interest rates? It's only because they believe the economy is not going to do well. So what happened to this big rebound? Look, we're going to get some type of a rebound in the third quarter and then the fourth quarter from the horrific decline in the first half of the year, particularly the second quarter. But after we get the initial rebound, then we're going to roll over again. And then this recession is going to continue to get worse, right? It's going to start off with a huge bang as we you know, send everybody home. And then maybe 30, 40% of the people who lost their jobs, they're going to come back. But the question is, how long are they going to stay back? Because they're going to be there for a while. But then as their employers discover that they don't really need them anymore, they can't afford them then they're going to gradually start to lay them off. Remember, there are a lot of companies that took government money on the condition that they wouldn't lay people off. Look at all these airlines. They haven't laid anybody off yet. But all these workers are going to get laid off. Air travel is not going back to the way it was uh, pre-corona, pre-recession. So then we're going to start to have a whole second wave. People are talking about, you know, the second wave of of COVID-19. What about the second wave of layoffs? And you know, People are overlooking how much more expensive hiring people has become during this crisis. Because remember, not only is it going to be more expensive for employers uh, to protect their workers, right? Because the cost of keeping your workers safe increases the cost of employing those people. All the extra stuff that companies are going to have to do to keep their employees safe is going to have a cost. That is going to be part of the labor costs. And of course, the cost of keeping the customers safe too is going to factor into that uh, to a degree as well. Uh, But also, Congress passed this mandatory paid leave for workers. You get sick leave and then you get family leave. So all of this now is built in to the cost of hiring people. And you know, the minimum wage has been going up. Uh, So a lot of these workers are going to be a lot more expensive 
for the employers to keep on the books. And now with their companies not even generating as much revenue, I mean, that's even less likely that they're going to maintain uh, these relationships. So you're going to get a, a surge of rehiring as a percentage of the initial job losses are reversed, but then gradually a lot of those people are going to end up uh, losing their jobs later as this progresses. And that's what this negative Fed funds is telling you. It's telling you that the markets are already looking beyond the snapback to the next decline. And therefore the Fed, the markets believe, is going to go negative. Now here's a big problem though for the Fed. Because now the Fed knows that the markets expect negative interest rates in January of next year, right? And so now the markets are rallying based on that anticipated rate cut because rates are positive now. So in order for the Fed to get the Fed funds negative, that implies that the Fed's going to cut rates. So now the market is getting excited about the rate cut. And so the market is rallying based on the expectation of a cut into negative territory. So the Fed has to come out and dampen those expectations now. It needs to nip them in the bud. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold traffic jams tailgating pileups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But here's the predicament. So far, the Fed hasn't done that. The Fed knows the market expects negative rates and the market is doing or the Fed is doing nothing to change the market's perception, which is tantamount to saying, yeah, you're right. We're going to have negative rates because we know the Fed never wants to disappoint the markets. And so if it's letting the markets hold on to the belief that rates are going negative, well, then they're probably going negative. And, you know, the longer the Fed waits to lean against that expectation, the harder it's going to be. Because if the Fed yanks that out from under the market, if the Fed lets the market start pricing in negative rates and then it takes it away, that's like a hike. All of a sudden they've tightened and now they could create a crash, which they don't want to do. So the Fed is in a a very, very uh, difficult position here uh, now that the markets are anticipating uh, negative rates. Now, of course, why is the market doing that? Well, it makes logical sense, right? It's the next mistake that the Fed would make, right? If the Fed keeps cutting rates when the economy is weak, and if you believe the economy is going to get weak and the Fed is at zero, well, you just assume it cuts to negative, right? That's the next thing it could do, right? But the fact that people think that negative rates would actually help, it's not going to help. The key is though, now that the markets expect negative rates, will the expectation of negative rates precipitate a crisis that actually prevents negative rates from ever materializing. Because negative rates would be a disaster for the dollar, especially considering that the dollar is the world's reserve currency. I think if we have negative rates, that's it for the dollar. I mean, the dollar's reserve currency status will not survive negative interest rates. But if the idea that rates are going to be negative might be enough, maybe there's going to be some type of dollar crisis between now and January that might take negative rates off the table. Maybe we'll see a huge move up in gold, a big drop in the dollar. Maybe the long end of the bond market will start to unravel. So we really have to watch these numbers uh, closely uh, because I think the Fed has really thrown down the gauntlet here uh, because negative rates is not a sign of policy success. It's a sign of complete failure. But it's also a sign of a, of, of a completely crazed central bank that refuses to admit its mistakes. It was a mistake to take rates to zero. It was all these cuts were a mistake. But rather than admit its past mistakes, it's just going to make an even bigger future mistake uh, by, by taking rates down to negative. Now, a couple of things. One, before I forget, in fact, I, I meant to mention this on the Wednesday podcast, but I forgot. But the virtual money show is happening next week. It is May 11th through the 13th. So in order to participate in this virtual show, it would have been held in Las Vegas. uh, But like many conferences, it got canceled. And so now it will be taking place online. But you can go to moneyshow.com and register. There is no cost to register. In fact, you can sign up at shift.moneyshow.com. So they have a special login for people who follow me so shift.moneyshow.com and then sign up and my actual talk right I'm not the only one there there are a lot of other people maybe you'll want to listen to what other people have to say but my live money show talk 
is going to be Tuesday, May 12th at 10.50 a.m. Eastern Time. So once you've uh, signed up for The Money Show, then you can visit The Money Show at that time and listen to, to my talk live. Also, there is a virtual exhibit hall there. And so Europe Pacific Capital will have a virtual booth at the virtual uh, Money Show exhibit hall. So maybe stop by and check it out. I'll be curious to see how this, uh, how this event works uh, in a virtual form as opposed to, you know, the actual uh, physical conferences. But again, you know, when people are staying at home, there are a lot of people that are not going to be involved in economic activity, right? There's hotel rooms that don't get rented. There's restaurants that don't get patronized. There's uh, air- airlines and, and, and Uber and taxi drivers, right? A lot of people get left out in the cold uh, when we, you know, do these events at home. The question is, how much longer will they continue? You know, and even I, I meant to to bring this point up when I was talking about um, the cost of doing business. But a lot of these firms, right, part of the cost now of staying in business is the risk that the shelter at home orders come back. I mean, even if everybody uh, is allowed to go back uh, to, uh, you know, business, albeit with masks and disinfectant and all kinds of social distancing Uh, requirements. But even if people are allowed to do that, entrepreneurs have no idea if all of a sudden uh, COVID-19 flares up later in the year or early next year, and all of a sudden all the workers have to go home for 30 days or 60 days all over again. I mean, that's a risk now. That wasn't a risk of of hiring people before because who the hell ever thought about that as a risk of being in business? Now everybody knows that that's a risk and that's, you know, going to add to uh, the, the costs of uh, bringing back workers and it's going to make employers less likely uh, to uh, to have workers. Now, let me get to some of the other data too when I'm talking about jobs. We got the weekly jobless claims that came out yesterday. And once again, we ended up with more uh, unemployment claims than we thought. The consensus was for 3,041,000 new weekly claims. Remember, these are the people that lose their jobs in one week. They talk about 3 million people filing for unemployment in a week. And instead, we ended up with 3,169,000 people who lost their jobs. And in fact, we even upwardly revised the prior week's losses from 3,839,000 to 3,846,000. So another 7,000 or so uh, more than we thought ended up losing their jobs. Here's an interesting number that came out yesterday. And this was something that I speculated on on Wednesday's podcast. We got consumer credit uh, for the month of March. Now, this is March. This isn't even April. And the consensus was for an increase of $15 billion. Instead, we had a collapse, minus $12.1 billion. And, and why is that? Well, I think exactly what I said. People are worried about their job whether they've already lost it or whether they may lose it. They're worried about uh, their stock portfolio if they have one going down, right? They're worried about a lot of things. And so they're not out there borrowing more money. They're they're hunkering down. Maybe some of them are actually paying off their credit card debt, paying it down with their stimulus checks. You know, by the way, I didn't even mention this. It shows you how ridiculous it is. You know, first of all, a lot of dead people got stimulus checks. I read this article 
that you know the IRS wants the money back that they sent out to dead people because they couldn't check, right? Because if you were alive in 2018, you know, and they knew about you, they sent you a stimulus check, even if you've since passed away, right? Now, obviously, if you're dead, you can't cash the check, but maybe your significant other or whoever was living with you can find a way of uh, cashing that check. I think that would be a crime uh, to cash or deposit a check that was made payable by accident to somebody who had died. But here's another example. A friend of mine had emailed me and this person uh, rented out rooms to visiting college professors, right? So these are professors that lived in Europe and they were in the States for maybe six months uh, working in connection with a university here. So while they were here, they got paid and they had to fill out the W-2s or whatever. And so they've already got over a year ago, these guys have back to Europe, but two of them got stimulus checks mailed to the old address because my, I got the email that, hey, I got these checks made payable to my former tenants who aren't even American citizens who just happen to be living in the country uh, during 2018. And so now they're getting checks. So the government has no idea who's getting these checks, right? Just mailing them out, right? They're just in such a rush to give out money. They're sending out money to people who aren't even American citizens and who don't even live in this country. Now, obviously, I mean, the right thing to do would be just destroy the checks or send it back. But I'm sure there's a lot of people that'll get these checks and find a way to give them to their friends or cash them. I mean, it's just going to be a, a, uh, a complete cesspool. Uh, but yeah, people are not going to rush out like I said on Wednesday, and just spend uh, all this stimulus money given the gravity of their current circumstances and how concerned they are. Remember, there was wild consumer optimism. We had record highs in consumer sentiment. They were as optimistic as they could possibly be. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Remember, I kept talking about Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, right? I wasn't even thinking about a pandemic, but clearly, you know, that's something that could go wrong and boy, did it. Uh, but, you know, again, coronavirus is the pin, right? It may be a damn big pin that has left a gaping hole in this bubble that was already deflating. The air was already seeping out, but now it's gushing out, right? And in fact, you know, look how much is quickly we've deflated, but that's it. The bubble has popped, right? There is nothing that can be done to reflate it. And people still don't get this. And if we're just going to keep printing money to tide us over until things get back to normal, they're never going to get back to normal. So what we're just going to do is print money until we destroy the value of the money that we're printing. Yeah, we could give everybody $2,000 a month until the $2,000 a month doesn't buy anything. Then what do we do? $4,000 a month? $10,000 a month, $100,000 a month, a million dollars a month, right? When do we stop the presses, right? Because all we're going to be doing is creating money that doesn't buy anything. But then the more we create, the less that money buys. All right, just one more point I want to make. And then I'm just going to go to these uh, Q&As. I got a bunch of questions again uh, that people, again, people asking me questions, paying money. Uh, I don't do them live, but, you know, I got somebody who's uh, keeping note of them. And then I'm going to, I answer them on Fridays, at least. That's what I have uh, have been doing. But I did want to mention, because I talked about this on a podcast briefly, and that's the sexual uh, harassments, rape allegations against Joe Biden. Because now more information has come out that the Tara Reid uh, actually reported this back in 1993. There's more evidence that she filed complaints. She complained about Joe Biden 
uh, harassing her. Now, that doesn't mean the complaint was true, but what it does mean is that she made the complaint at the time. Like, she didn't wait 30, 35 years until he's, you know, the Democratic nominee for president, right? She actually uh, brought this complaint forward at the time that the alleged conduct took place, which is much better than what, you know, uh, uh, Blaisley Ford did because she didn't say anything until Kavanaugh is nominated for the Supreme Court, right? She said nothing. But here you have Reed, who actually spoke up, uh, spoke to friends, filed complaints at the time of the alleged rape or whatever the conduct was. Again, I'm not saying that her complaint is accurate. You know, she could have been lying back then too, right? I mean, whatever, right? But her accusation now has more credibility than it did before, right? And so what's actually happened is there's been a number of women uh, who have come out now. And these are women who were, uh, you know, believing Blaisley Ford. I keep forgetting her name. Believing Blaisley Ford. Uh, and, you know, she she was credible. She had to be believed. Believe all women, right? Victims believe victims. And so they believed her and they were ready to string up Kavanaugh. He can't be on the Supreme Court, uh, you know, we can't have a rapist on the Supreme Court, right? That was, you know, because rape was so bad, right? Uh, to to treat a woman the way um, Kavanaugh was accused of treating a woman, even if he was 17 and drunk, right? It was so bad, right? This conduct is so reprehensible and so bad that even if you do it when you're 17 and a drunk minor at a party, and even if now you're in your 50s, and you've had a completely clean life ever since then, right? And you have all these women who are going to say he's a gentleman. You know, I've known him for all these years and I've never seen him act the way he supposedly may have acted as a teenager uh, while he was drinking some brewskis at a party, right? No, 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 no. The conduct was so bad that there was no way to atone for that sin. No matter how many years had gone by, no matter how great a person Kavanaugh may have been, how great a judge he may have been, how great a father, a husband, an employer, all the things that he did. His whole life's work of accomplishments meant nothing because as a 17-year-old, he assaulted a woman. Didn't even rape her. He just, you know, he assaulted her. He was on top of her and he, she was scared, right? And so whatever he did wrong, none of the good things mattered because it was all rendered irrelevant because of this one thing he did. Because that's how bad it is. And it's a bad message. We can't have a Supreme Court justice who, as a 17-year-old boy, did what Kavanaugh was accused of doing, even if he did it, which I don't think he did. But let's say you say, if he did it, then there's no place for that guy. I don't care what he's done since, doesn't matter, right? That was the attitude. Well, now you've got women, the same women, because they don't want to come out and be hypocrites and say, well, I think uh, uh, Tara Reid is a liar, right? So they want to come out and they want to believe Tara Reid because if they want to believe all women, I mean, Tara Reid's a woman, so you got to believe her and if you believe the victims. So you got these women coming out saying, we believe Tara. We believe that Joe Biden raped her in 1993. We believe that. Yet, we still support Joe Biden and we still want Joe Biden to be president even though he's a rapist and even though he's lying about having been a rapist. And in fact, we don't care how many people, women he's raped, because if it was raping women back in 1993, who knows how many women he's raped since then, right? And apparently it doesn't matter. But wait a minute, it, this, doesn't, this isn't any less 
hypocritical. It, it's not just about whether or not you believe Tara Reid. Okay, you're going to believe Tara Reid, but if you're saying that Judge Kavanaugh should not have been on the Supreme Court, one of nine justices, because he was accused of harassing a woman when he was 17, you're talking about Joe Biden doing something. What was he in 1993? Was he in his 40s or what, 50s? I forget. He was an adult. He was a member of the United States Congress. He wasn't a kid drunk at a beach house. This is an adult harassing his own staffer. And in fact, he's actually accused of raping her. Actual rape, right? I mean, not what Kavanaugh supposedly did. Yet these women are willing to say, oh, that's okay. We don't care that he did this. Well, if you're okay with Biden raping one of his staffers, well, then I guess rape's not that bad. If you're okay with it, right? I mean, the idea is now rape is only a bad thing if the person doing the raping is a conservative, right? Or has a political opinion that you disagree with. But if the rapist is a liberal, right? If the, if the rapist holds a political philosophy that is in agreement with your own, then it's okay if that person rapes somebody and it's fine if they're president, right? We can't have a Supreme Court justice who has mistreated women in the past, but it's totally fine to have a president of the United States who has mistreated women in the past, as long as that president of the United States is one of the good guys. Well, wait a minute, if he's one of the good guys, why is he raping women? Isn't that a bad thing to do? I mean, how could you have that kind of moral relativism by saying, yeah, he's a good guy, yeah, he rapes women, but let's forget about that. Putting all that aside, he's a great guy, right? Which this is even more hypocrisy. I think it's even worse. These women who think, oh, we're gonna come out and say we believe Tara Reid, the fact that you believe her and you still want to elect Biden, you, that makes you a bigger hypocrite. You should be demanding that Biden step down and allow somebody who has respect for women, somebody who doesn't rape women, to be the Democratic nominee. Anyway, let me go to uh, the Q&A. First question. Assuming the market retests the lows and crashes before year end, will gold retest as well? I've heard arguments for both gold going higher and a market crashing. Here's my view. I think gold's seen the lows. I think gold stocks have seen the lows. I've been saying this uh, for a while now. And gold stocks have more than doubled from the lows. You know, I ended up having to call a client today and I felt really bad. This is a client that panicked and sold all of her stocks in March. And I hate it. I hate to see, you know, somebody who sold stocks and now the stocks she sold are double what she sold them for. Fortunately, it was only a handful of clients who made that mistake. I did my best uh, to uh, prevent that from happening. But I don't think the gold stocks are going to go back down to the vicinity of those lows. They never should have been there. They were giving these stocks away. I was saying that on the podcast. I was buying all the way down myself. And I was advising anybody who listened uh, to, to, to do the same thing. They're not giving the stocks away anymore, right? Because they've doubled. I mean, but they're still cheap. I think they're still a great investment. They're just not, you know, giving them out for nothing. They were throwing them away, you know, in March, you know, just panic selling. I mean, people were selling the very stocks they should have been buying. Everything that was happening was great. That's what I was saying. It was so bullish uh, for gold stocks. The fundamentals had never been better, yet the prices had never been lower. It was a massive uh, disconnect, but it was a great opportunity. And I'm glad a lot of people who uh, follow me uh, took advantage of that. So I think that the U.S. stock market could make new lows. I think particular 
if we get a big sell-off in the FANG names. I mean, they never went down. Everybody's hiding out on those stocks. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, a, a move down led by those stocks. So I do think that we could take out the March lows. I don't know that we're going to take them out by that big a margin because the Fed is just going to be there with so much money printing. I don't think the emerging markets are going to take out the lows. I think the lows are likely in uh, for those markets. Uh, They may pull back, but I think the lows are in. I think a rally is coming. I think the key is going to be the dollar. We need to see the dollar rolling over. Uh, Dollar index is having a hard time moving up. uh, So the next thing is to move down. And once it starts moving down, that's going to be a very easy trip uh, for the dollar to make. Uh, and it's going to go way down. So I would be uh, a buyer of gold right here. I'd be a buyer of gold stocks right here. I, I don't think there will be much of a pullback. You know, I got to uh, bring up Bitcoin. I meant to talk about it. Uh, and I just realized I was supposed to talk about it. But, you know, Bitcoin is around $10,000 now. I mean, we're now, uh, you know, as I'm speaking, it's just below 10000 But it's been uh, above 10000 and yeah, you know, the halving is what, three, four days away. So I think we're very close to the high of this bear market rally. You've had tremendous speculation in Bitcoin. And I think leading up to the halving, you've got a lot more speculative buying. Now, maybe the buy the rumor, sell the fact will start before the actual halving. Or maybe there'll be a little bit of a gasp uh, when, you know, on the halving. I don't know. But I think uh, there's a lot of downside risk right here in Bitcoin. I know everybody is real excited now because Bitcoin is up and it's back at 10,000. Yeah, people always get excited during the rallies. But I think one of the reasons that people are excited now is because there was a report that came out uh, and it got a lot of uh, press. I mean, CNBC, you know, the Bitcoin lovers over there couldn't get enough of this. But uh, Paul Tudor Jones, hedge fund manager, been around a long time put out a note in which he basically uh, mentioned Bitcoin as an inflation hedge, right? Paul Tudor Jones is very worried about inflation, as he should be. And he says that, you know, we need to invest in inflation hedges. And he specifically talked about gold, but he also talked about Bitcoin. And he left the door open uh, for his fund to take a small position, a small single-digit position in Bitcoin as supposedly the fastest horse in the race if people are looking for inflation hedges and he should not overlook Bitcoin. And of course, the, the, commu- the crypto community jumped all over this as if you know this now has the Paul Tudor Jones good housekeeping seal of approval that Bitcoin has finally made it. You've got hedge funds that are acknowledging uh, Bitcoin and uh, nothing like that actually happened. In fact, if you read uh, what Jones wrote, he specifically said he's not a big Bitcoin guy. Uh, and in fact, on a ranking of assets, he ranked a Bitcoin lowest as far as a store of value or safe haven. He ranked it below cash, uh, below financial assets, below gold. So he is not a believer in Bitcoin as a long-term store of value. So why did he mention uh, buying it? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, If you don't know much about Paul Tudor Jones, he is a trader. He'll trade anything if he thinks he can make a profit. 
So when he mentions Bitcoin, it is as a trading vehicle. And in fact, he's talking about Bitcoin futures, not actual the actual Bitcoin, but trading in Bitcoin futures. And believe me, there's no way that Paul Tudor Jones is going to marry Bitcoin. At the most, he'll date it until he tires of it. And he may think that, hey, if I think there's going to be a lot of inflation, then what assets might go up? And Bitcoin is being bought. It's being marketed as an inflation hedge, as a, as a hedge against fiat currencies. So to the extent that people will buy it on the false perception that it represents a hedge, then what Paul Tudor Jones is thinking of, hey, if I think there's going to be a bunch of inflation and if I think people are going to be seeking out inflation hedges and if Bitcoin is perceived to be one, even though it may not be, if I buy Bitcoin now and then others buy it later, I can trade out of it at a profit and I can get in it and get out and make some money. And I think that is all uh, that Paul Tudor Jones uh, is thinking about. I don't think he's talking about being a hodler uh, he's thinking, hey, maybe there's a trading opportunity for me to get in and out. Maybe I can buy some Bitcoin and then sell at a profit to a greater fool. Now, personally, I think that would be a foolish bet. I think if Paul Tudor Jones were to buy Bitcoin now, my guess is he's more likely to trade out of it with a loss than with a profit. But who knows? He's a great trader. Maybe he'll be nimble enough to pull it off. Uh, and maybe he won't even try. Now, he's actually going to be on CNBC on Monday. And so I'm sure they're going to ask him about Bitcoin. I'm sure he's also going to walk it back and throw a lot of cold water on a lot of this crazy speculation uh, that he thinks Bitcoin is better than gold and a better store of value and a better safe haven. I, he doesn't think that at all. Uh, and so I think to the extent that people are using uh, this as some way to, to tout more Bitcoin so they can get out, uh, maybe the interview on Monday on CNBC uh, could spark a sell-off in Bitcoin as well as the buy the rumors, sell the fact of the uh, the having. Next question. Peter, can you speak to the recyclability of silver and how the factors into the investment prospects are appreciating light of the volatile supply and demand? Uh, look, you know, I don't think that is going to play a big, a big factor. I mean, obviously, as the price of silver goes up, people are going to start, you know, turning in their silver. Right. You know, you have a, you know, silverware, a set of silver could be very valuable. I mean, you know, if you're broke and your silverware that you have, you know, in, in your good china drawer, if you can get thirty five, forty thousand dollars for your forks and your knives, uh, a lot of people will, will do that. I mean, even if they inherited it from their grandma and it has some kind of sentimental value, you know, if you're unemployed and you need money and you, you're, you're you know, the, 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 the good silverware is worth 50 grand you know, well, you're going to sell it and they're going to melt it down. You know, when silver is cheap, you know, okay, I'm going to hold on to the, the, the family uh, family silver. But, you know, there's going to come a time where people are going to turn it in. And there are, you know, a lot of things that are going to get melted down. But it's, it's not going to do anything to suppress the price of silver. I think once the demand really uh, comes, uh, it's just going to keep on going up. And obviously, the higher the price, uh, the more silver is going to be mined from people's uh, dining rooms, not just from actual uh, silver mines. Next question. I've been looking into MMT to try to understand what, okay, look, there's nothing to understand about MMT, right? It's supposedly modern monetary theory. There's nothing modern about it. I suppose it has something to do with money and it's not a theory. Because a theory would imply that, you know, 
maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. It's like untested. It is tested. We know it doesn't work. They tried it in Zimbabwe. They tried it in Argentina. They tried it in Venezuela. They tried it in Weimar Republic, uh, Germany. It doesn't work. Just because it appears to work before it spectacularly fails uh, doesn't mean it works. So this is all a bunch of nonsense. I mean, there are some things that the modern monetary guys have got right, only they got the big picture wrong. They don't understand why they've got it right or why they've, they've got it wrong, but they make some valid points, but they don't understand that the points they're making are only valid because the whole system is a, is, is a fraud and the whole thing is going to implode. They just don't know that. They think it works. They think we can keep printing money and there's no downside, right? Although they do think, well, we can keep doing it until there's inflation. Well, what they're doing is inflation. And to say, well, we're going to keep doing it until we have the consequences. That's like, well, I'm going to keep smoking until I get lung cancer. But what good is that? I mean, what's the point of quitting smoking once you have lung cancer, right? If that's how you get it by smoking, how about don't smoke and then you won't get the cancer. If you just keep printing money, Right. The inflation is going to come. It's just, you know, or the consumer price part, it's going to go up. So it's eventually going to happen. So the idea that we can keep doing it and it's not going to happen is just complete nonsense. So all these MMT guys are completely nuts. But the left loves them like AOC and the Democrats because they rationalize what they want to do. Hey, there's nothing we can't afford. Nothing's too expensive because we just print the money. It doesn't matter how much debt we have, right? It doesn't matter if the national debt goes to 50 trillion or 100 trillion because we could just print it, right? So nothing matters, right? There's no limit, right? There's a free lunch, right? That's why uh, it, this is going to be very popular uh, politically and, you know, and it may happen and it's going to be a complete disaster. Next question, Mr. Schiff, what do you think about the Russian bonds long and short term? Look, I haven't, I don't own any Russian bonds, but I think the ruble is going to go up. So I think, uh, you know, I mean, there's, you know, you could probably buy them. <coughs> it's not something that I've done and my bond fund hasn't done it, but I'd rather, you know, like if it was between Russian bonds and treasuries, I'd buy Russian bonds. If those were my two choices. Um, next question. Is the gold mutual fund for non-U.S. investors on Europe Pacific Bank the same one? No. Okay, so Europe Pacific Bank has a mutual fund that we do not manage. You can buy it if you're not an American. You can go and buy the fund. It has a lot of gold stocks, so you'll do well. But it's not the same one that Adrian Day manages. If you want that fund, then you got to buy through your Pacific Asset Management. Now, right now, we're only taking uh, separately managed accounts that Adrian is managing. So you can open up an account. But soon, we're going to have that fund. I found out there is a way that I can allow foreigners to buy the U.S. mutual fund. So we're working that out now. And once we have it all done, then anybody who wants to have me manage their money will be able to buy it. But in the meantime, you can buy the gold fund that is sold on the Europe Pacific Bank website. It's a fine fund. It's just not managed by Adrian Day. It's managed by a, a different manager that, we, that the bank hired before I hired Adrian Day, right? Before he was working for me, we had we had a different guy, and so that's who's managing. So it's a different it's a different uh, portfolio, but you should you could still do it. And then when when Adrian's fund is available internationally, if you want, you you can switch over. Um, next question: You assume the Chinese officials are waking up to the bubble nature of the U.S. economy, but the trade war showed that they are still clinging to exporting, devaluing RMB. Why are you assuming they are waking up? Look. 
Nobody is asleep forever, right? Uh, the Chinese aren't a bunch of idiots. But you can look at their holdings of U.S. Treasuries now. They're going down. Uh, you can look at the attitude that they took uh, during the trade war, during the negotiations. It's clear to me uh, that they are trying to uh, you know, change the dynamic here. And look at their relationships with other countries. Uh, the writing is on the wall. And we know that this is not going to go on indefinitely. It is a parasitic relationship. Uh, the Chinese are producing and then we consume and the Chinese are saving and, and, and we're borrowing. Uh, you know, they do all the hard part and we do the fun part. And this does not work for them. They're, they're going to get a divorce and they're, and they're going to walk away uh, with the, you know, the, the, better, the, the better settlement. Right? We're, 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 we're in a lot of trouble. And, you know, and, and Trump is acting like, oh, you know, we had this great, fantastic deal, you know, just like we had this great economy, you know, and now, you know, the whole deal that I worked on, I mean, now it doesn't mean anything because of the, the COVID-19. Look, the deal wasn't going to do anything anyway. So now COVID-19 just becomes another scapegoat, another excuse for Trump to claim that I would have had this great deal and I really negotiated this fantastic deal. And then, you know, this thing happened that nobody could have anticipated and so the whole thing was, uh, you know, for nothing. But hey, reelect me because then I'll, I'll get you an even better deal in my second term. Right. That's going to be his campaign promise. Um, next question. What about silver stocks? You rarely mention them. Of course, silver stocks, you know, again, some of these silver stocks have already doubled. One of the stocks that that client sold uh, on the lows was silver wheat, which is a, you know, a, a silver stock. I mean, personally, it's it's my largest personal position in a silver stock. Again, I don't want to give out a recommendation uh, on, uh, uh, on the podcast. You got to talk to my brokers uh, at Europe Pacific Capital and make sure the you know, stocks are suitable. But yeah, I mean, I love silver stocks, right? And there's some silver stocks, there's some smaller ones. Uh, silver Wheaton is a streaming, a royalty company, which is one of the reasons my position is so big and it hit a 52-week high. Uh, but I, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Just like I think there's more upside in silver than gold, there's probably more upside in these silver stocks than there is in gold stocks. Maybe there's more risk too. But of course, you know, a lot of the gold stocks also mine silver, right? The mines have both metals, except you have these pure plays on silver. But even those companies still mine some gold, right? But they are, they are heavily weighted towards silver, which means those stocks are, are going to be more impacted. And the price of silver is still very, very low. You know, the last time gold was as high as it is today, like 1720 1730 silver might have been 30 bucks. Instead, it's $15, whatever, half. So silver has a long way to go to catch up with gold. And it's going to. And when it starts to move, it's going to happen very quickly. So if you, if you, you know, have a higher risk tolerance and you want to speculate, these stocks are great speculation. Again, we have an allocation to these types of stocks in the Europe Pacific Gold Fund. So if you're investing in my gold fund, you're also going to have some exposure uh, to some of these stocks. Um, next question. What about a melt-up? Can you see a scenario where stocks and other assets just soar? Yeah, I mean, only in massive inflation, hyperinflation. But then it's not a true melt-up. It's a dollar meltdown, right? And so when the dollar's melting down, you need more and more dollars to buy everything, which is going to include stocks. It's going to include real estate. Except in that environment, the price of goods is going to be going up a lot faster than the price of stocks. So even though you're going to have a stock portfolio that is worth more dollars, in reality, you're not going to have a higher standard of living because when you sell your stocks, 
to get dollars and then you have to buy consumer goods, you're not going to be able to buy as many. And of course, as the stock market is or the dollar is melting down and the stock market is melting up, as you measure the price of stocks in gold, which is real money, then you'll see stocks melting down as well. Next question. What is your view of the Canadian economy and the QE programs that are implemented? Look, Canada is making a lot of the same mistakes that the U.S. is making. They're just not in as worse a shape as the U.S. The Canadian dollar is not the world's reserve currency. Uh, so they haven't been abusing that privilege for decades. And so they don't have as phony economy. And I do think that the Canadian economy is going to benefit rather dramatically by the boom in resources, particularly in, uh, in precious metals, right? Uh, there's a lot of uh, mining that goes on up there. There's a lot of big gold and silver companies based in Canada. And I think this boom in mining is going to be a big positive for the entire Canadian economy. Just like, you know, when the oil price goes up, like that's great for Texas because there's a lot of oil there. And now all of a sudden there's a lot of work there, a lot of economic activity. Same thing is going to happen when we have a mining boom. It's going to benefit Canadian economy. It's going to generate income. Uh, for a lot of people, a lot of economic activity is going to be taking place uh, because of uh, the mining boom. So uh, that is going to be much more favorable for Canada than it is for the United States, which is another reason I think the Canadian dollar is going to be going up against the U.S. dollar, but it is going to be losing value as, as measured by gold, just like all the other fiat currencies around the world. Um, Hey, Peter, if the U.S. deregulates the economy while other economies get more regulated, wouldn't that help the dollar? Well, yeah, that would be a positive, but that's not what's happening. We're actually not getting less regulation. We're getting more regulation. You know, we've passed additional regulations since this recession started. I talked about some of it on mandatory uh, paid leave, family medical leave and stuff like that. We're going to get more legislation, I'm sure. Uh, surrounding keeping your workers and your customers safe. So we're not getting deregulation. Uh, but yes, to the extent that we uh, removed regulations while other countries added new regulations, that would be a positive for us. That would make us more competitive and other countries less competitive. But you can't just look at that in a vacuum. You got to look at all the other things, uh, all the other negatives uh, that are in place uh, that we have that you know, other countries may not have in as a large a, a degree. Next question. There's a rumor that a war on gold is imminent, meaning that mines located in regions that are sanctioned by the U.S. will be confiscated. Uh, uh, Marin Katusa is stirring this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I saw that interview with Katusa. Because a lot of people had uh, asked me about it. And uh, it was George Gammon uh, show that I've been on his show as well. And so he was interviewed and he was talking about the elevated political risk that he saw in countries that didn't have swap facilities set up with the Fed. And most countries don't have these swap lines, but there are a number of countries uh, that have these agreements with the Fed. And it was his idea that you wanted to own mining companies where the mines were located in those countries because those countries in order to you know, qualify for the swap line, they had to agree not to nationalize uh, you know, U.S. companies that may be in their jurisdiction. But these non-swap countries uh, made no such commitment. And he's worried that you know, a dollar shortage in those countries would result in them uh, confiscating, uh, nationalizing 
gold mines. And he talked about some particular big companies, Franco Nevada. I have a large position personally in Franco Nevada. My funds own Franco Nevada. He mentioned Barrick. Uh, I own a lot of Barrick. My funds own a lot of Barrick as being companies that were exposed. Now, he mentioned some like Agnigo Eagle, which again, a very large position uh, personally, uh, big position in our funds where he said, hey, we like Agnigo because all of its mines are in these swap countries. Uh, and, and basically, I, I don't think there's, there's much merit to what, what he's saying. I, I think he's ringing an alarm bell that really doesn't need to be rung. Yes, of course, there's political risk in gold mining. That's always been the case. I don't think uh, the, uh, you know, the opening up of these swap lines changes the dynamics at all. I don't believe that there's going to be this huge dollar shortage that people are concerned about. Um, and, and so I don't even think it's going to be an issue. Uh, but I think that the political risk in the various mines that are in countries where there is more risk, I think that is already in their price. I think it already is discounted by the market. He's acting as if political risk is not a factor in the valuation of stocks. And yes, it is. I mean, I know that that's the case. So uh, mines that are located in areas that are perceived to be more risky in that there's a higher political risk, then those assets are marked down accordingly. So that risk is discounted to the price. You know, one of the things I, one of the points I've made is that I think that there's a lot of political risk associated with U.S. assets that is not being priced into uh, U.S. stocks. And I don't know that it's the U.S. government actually nationalizing these companies, but the types of regulations and requirements that may be imposed, particularly if we get a Democratic president with a Democratic Congress, knowing what these guys want to do, basically they're confiscating assets and redistributing it to the workers is what they really want to do. Uh, they want to you know, basically socialize, nationalize American companies through taxation and regulation, which is basically fascism. But I think there is tremendous regulatory and taxation risk surrounding all U.S. assets uh, to a much greater degree, I think, than assets in a lot of other developed markets. And I think that political risk is not being priced into the market. But look, I think uh, that what um, Katusa is doing is he's, he's being controversial. He has a newsletter. Uh, he's looking for subscribers. So I think this is an angle that he wants to exploit. Uh, maybe he's getting a lot of new subscribers uh, by talking about this and, 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 and mentioning some of these widely held big names, bellwether names, maybe scaring people into, oh, I better buy this newsletter. Maybe I shouldn't own these stocks. Look, I think anybody who sells Franco Nevada, for example, uh, because uh, they're worried about the point that Katusa is making, I think it'd be a mistake. I think if you like Franco, uh, and you know, you're a long-term holder and you've got big gains. I don't see any reason to be scared out of the stock uh, because of this uh, potential risk. And in fact, the stock just made a new high, I think yesterday. Uh, so I don't think the market is very concerned about these risks, even though now that they've been, they've been raised in, in a public way. So I would just ignore it. And you know, I ran it by Adrian. Uh, who manages the gold fund and Adrian agrees and he doesn't have any any concerns over any of the stocks that we own in our portfolio and he, he really thinks that you know there, there, there's this is not a, a new risk uh, that now we have to be cognizant of it's it's a risk that's always been there 
and that has uh, been discounted uh, by the market into the minds that are in uh, jurisdictions that have a higher degree of political risk. Uh, the last uh, question. Um, as a physical store of value, platinum is almost half the price of gold and many governments are minting coins with platinum as gold overpriced uh, versus platinum. Look, platinum is certainly cheap, just like silver, right? And, and so I do believe that platinum is a good buy. Now, having said that, I've believed that for some time and it's just gotten to be an even better buy. Uh, but typically, the price of platinum is higher than the price of gold and, 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 and now it's way below. So yeah, I mean, I think owning some platinum makes some sense here. I mean, platinum is not generally a monetary metal and it doesn't have all of the same properties as gold, uh, but platinum, you know, is a precious metal and, uh, you know, I do think platinum looks cheap. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, there are stocks that, that also uh, benefit from platinum. Look at what happened to palladium. I mean, platinum is not only cheap relative to gold, it's cheap relative to palladium. And there's a lot of potential substitution effects going on there. So, yeah, you know, I think platinum is another good buy. Now, personally, I think silver has even more upside. So between the two, you know, I would go for silver over platinum. Uh, but I think platinum is going to go up and I think platinum even has a good chance of going up against gold, but not because gold goes down. I think gold's going up. It's just that platinum uh, may go up more. And anyway, you could buy platinum and gold and silver. You can do it through the Perth Mint. Uh, if you want to do it through the certificate program, Danielle Parsons. You know, I've been I've been referring to her by her uh, a maiden, maiden name. You know, I hired her originally. Uh, it was Danny Dwyer. And I, you know, I got so used to calling her by that name. I forgot she got married. It was like 10 years ago. So it's not like it's, it's something that just happened. So uh, Diane, uh, 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 Danielle Parsons is her actual current name. And uh, so you can speak with her at Europe Pacific Capital about the Perth Mint program. You could buy silver. You could buy platinum. You could buy gold. Uh, they also have, uh, you know, if you have an account of gold money, they have platinum on the platform as well as silver. So you can buy that. Uh, or, you know, again, buy some of these mining stocks. Talk with your Europe Pacific Capital broker about the individual names that would specifically benefit uh, from those metals or again, you know, just uh, diversify, let Adrian Day uh, manage your portfolio by just having some money invested in the Europe Pacific Gold Fund or if you're a larger investor, you can have a separately managed account where Adrian will manage your personal portfolio for you uh, of, uh, of stocks in this sector. Anyway, that's it for now. Have a very, very a happy Mother's Day, everybody, which is on Sunday. This is going to be the first uh, shelter at home, uh, Mother's Day. Uh, hopefully, maybe we'll be out and about by Father's Day. We'll see. Uh, I'm hoping to be up in Connecticut by then. Um, I, I, you know, get starting to get real hot here in Puerto Rico. You know, it's in the 90s now, and uh, I hear that Connecticut is very beautiful. We have a lot of uh, uh, things coming into bloom. Uh, May's nice, so usually by uh, by uh, Memorial Day, I like to get back up to Connecticut. So hopefully that's what I end up doing this year. Anyway, have a great weekend. Have a great Mother's Day. And we will be back again next week with more of these uh, podcasts. Bye for now.